When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how's the weekend finding you so far? Well, it's always great to be with you. It's uh, finding me so far really good. That's great to hear, Jeff. And of course, I hope our listeners are doing well today, too. Last part of September, early part of October, fourth quarter is here. And of course, fall is upon us. License plates have not begun to change here right now, but I know that things are going to be cooling off a little bit here in this part of the country. Let's start off by talking about current events as we do every week, Jeff. I'm a little troubled by some of the figures that I'm seeing here. I read that consumer credit card debt is around $1 trillion right now with average interest rates of 22%. National debt is $33 trillion. Subprime auto loans are seeing a big increase in repossessions. Debt crisis has been here. It continues to be here. And I don't know what we're going to do about this. Bidenomics just doesn't seem to be working. So what is your take on this debt crisis and how it affects us as responsible consumers who don't get into debt? I would imagine that certainly those people who are looking to loan money are being a little reticent about doing it these days. Very much so. Banks are recoiling from the Bidenomics. It's funny, Bidenomics at work. I cannot believe, seriously, why anyone would want to put his name on the economic situation, but he gladly did it thinking that somehow they could spin it to make it sound like everybody's doing great because wages have increased 3% while uh, inflation's gone up over 20 in the last uh, couple of years since he's been in control. Well, I don't, he's not in control. We know that, but since he's been the puppet of this new Bidenomic machine, but uh, yeah, debt's uh, spiraling out of control. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how the helicopter money, all that stimulus money mm-hmm. that's been, uh, you know, the trillions of dollars that have been given out through COVID and other things and the billions and billions that have been made and kind of siphoned off the uh, economy to the pharmaceutical companies and all those uh, cronies of the government that have been part of this big ruin America plan is what it seems like. And I hate to uh, sound like a conspiracy theorist or a uh, naysayer or anti-government guy, but I don't like what the government's doing to America, the uh, economic system and the capitalist system that uh, has made America, America what it is, is uh, being attacked and being uh, beat up and it's it's being torn down. So, you know, inflation is never good. We had new housing fall, I believe it was 8.7% in August, which is going backwards. It's not, uh, that's not good. We talked about the economic indicators uh, 16 months in a row that they've been negative. Housing starts and housing sales are a big part of that, but mortgage interest rates are a big part of that problem. Nobody can afford a house. I mean, if you're buying a $450,000 house, your payment just doubled in the last two years compared to what you could have paid for that same house two years 
ago. Now, mm -hmm. the prices in order to get that same payment down to an affordable level so somebody could buy that house, what, we have to have the prices of the houses you know, fall by 50%? I don't think that we'll have a retraction of real estate prices to that degree. However, to get us back in the same economic parity with where we were, where people could afford stuff and buy homes and do those things that generate you know, economic numbers that grow the GDP and make people think that there's a, you know, it can go confidently moving ahead with the with economy and spending money, aren't happening. In fact, consumer confidence was down so far in September, a recent report showed. So uh, I think that's been the trouble for this market uh, problems, then the softness in the market, the negative market performance in the last week or so. So, you know, people are not confident. People are not confident with, uh, you know, Bidenomics. Uh, you know, his polls are going down, 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 down. Now we're talking about, you know, people like Newsom and other people are jumping in and saying, hey, uh, you know, just getting their face out there because they think they can be a candidate for the Democratic Party. I think a third party might tear their uh, hopes up even more, kind of like Perot did for uh, the Republican Party years ago. And right. he ran, uh, I believe it was Bush, because he had some veneto against him and, you know, diluted the vote. So, I mean, I don't know. The elections aren't, even though I can believe in the elections and this whole democratic process that's supposed to be uh, put in leadership in uh, leadership positions isn't isn't working for me much. But let's get back to the economy and your questions you asked. Yeah, things are finally showing up. All the savings and all that helicopter money that was spewed out to everybody has finally dried up this month. And, you know, we showed the, well, we explained the graph that I was looking at a couple shows ago that I think it was two weeks ago when we uh, had that, where we talked about the helicopter money drying right. up and there's a couple of economic indicators and things like that. If I'm not mistaken, that was, uh, so if you want to go on the podcast or on the website and find that show, you can listen to it again if you didn't hear it. But, you know, the things are pointing in a very negative direction right now. And I've been talking about this for a year now when the yield curve inverts and the Fed keeps on raising interest rates. Now, just with the yield curve inversion, meaning long-term rates are lower than short-term interest rates, it creates a frenzy to buy CDs at 4 or 5% and short-term bonds at 4 or 5%, but not going to the stock market and not buy stuff. That all sounds well and good on one front. However, with the rising interest rates and the yield curve inversion, there's never been a situation where we haven't ended in a recession. And that recession typically takes about 12 to 24 months to come to fruition. We're still in that 12 to 24 month range. We're at, I believe, month 16 or 17. Same amount of time that the economic indicators have been falling and lower and lower and lower. So eventually that all catches up and the recession really happens. People finally realize GDP really isn't growing. Inflation is eroding buying power. Debt is going up. People are basically creating this fake economy based on a credit card debt that they don't even plan to pay back at 22 or 32%. Or maybe they can pay back, but they're trying to go one last hurrah, use up their credit lines because it's unsecured debt and generally. It's stuff that people end up just, and banks are going to have to write off, but it's going to also cause a lot of pressure on banks. More banks are going to fail. That's what happens in recessions. People are going to stop buying cars, stop buying houses. We're going to see prices probably retract on those things. It might be a better time to uh, you know, consider building or adding on to your house or building a house in, in a year or two when you know nobody can afford to do it. You might get a better deal. But I, I do see, I, I guess the icing on the cake, or I guess the lemonade and the lemons here is that uh, we do need to reset. The recession will cause people to have a better look. Unfortunately, it will hurt a lot of people, especially middle class people, our kids. You know, we're gonna. I know we're gonna talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, you know, how how much do we want to help our kids, and how much do we want to jeopardize our retirement plan? But right. you know, I think our kids are the ones that are. Uh, you know, if you're talking about my generation, most of the people that listen to this radio show are probably getting ready for retirement or retired. That's kind of who we angle this show or focus on. But you know, it's 
those people that haven't really made it and aren't financially secure are going to suffer the most. And it's unfortunate. But I do think we need a reset. We need to rethink where we're at economically and what the policies that have got us into this mess have done and why we have to change them and go back to smart fiscal management from the government level down. Businesses have to be smarter. We have to, you know, quit going woke and broke. We have to quit, you know, putting social whims in front of actual economic benefit for the whole, you know, instead of trying to uh, focus on these little splinter groups and factions of a society that somehow, you know, get us uh, distracted and not focusing on those things that make everybody live in a better place. So I think a good reset, a good recession will help us rethink those things. It'll, I hope it puts us back in a situation where we have to uh, be responsible from a government level, leadership level down and get focused on uh, those things that'll make the economy great again. And, you know, we have the power and the ability to do that. But guess what? Economic cycles happen. Cycles happen and they complete. We are in an economic cycle. We are in a credit cycle. We're at the end of a lot of cycles that unfortunately coming together at the same time are probably going to make the next six to 12 months harder than some of the corrections and the problems that we've had before, according to smart people like Dalio and Drucker and people that we've quoted recently. Very smart, older economists. I mean, you got Warren Buffett. He's still shrinking his portfolio. He's still selling more stocks than buying. He's selling uh, good positions that, you know, have made Berkshire Hathaway a stock good, and he's raising cash. Why? Well, because he thinks the market's going to give him better opportunities to buy later. Well, he's a smart guy, probably one of the smartest investors uh, we've ever had, uh, at least in our lifetimes. And a lot of other people that aren't getting news press, but uh, people that I am reading and I do agree with because they back up their information or their uh, opinions with facts, history, cycles, things that you know have so far like 100% chance of coming to fruition. So we have to honor that and we have to uh, respect it and we have to prepare for it. Jeff, you touched on interest rate hikes and the Fed official signaled last week that they plan to keep interest rates high for quite a while. And for families who don't need to borrow, I mean, higher rates might not affect daily life too much. But for those who do the Fed's aggressive rate increases, they're really beginning to sting. The bite is starting right now. As you said, I mean, interest rates on home loans around seven and a half percent. They very well could go higher. For people who are looking to refinance, of course, uh, there's no place for them to go. For people who are looking to sell a home because they have to, they might have to downsize. Certainly, there are not as many buyers out there who can afford 7.5% interest if they're not cash buyers. So we're really in quite a debt crisis right now. And it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Of course, we do have an election around the corner. How does the election cycle affect the economy and the market? I mean, is it going to drive the market down or the good buying opportunities? What's your opinion on how this election cycle is going to affect people who are investors and listeners to this show? Well, I think, I think people need to have a level of caution. Most people get a little bit cautious before an election, but once the election's over, typically, the, no matter what party wins, we get a nice bounce because at least we know where we're at. And, uh, you know, we even had it for a brief moment. Well, not really. It kind of ended as soon as Biden came into office. I think people knew that the Trump days were over. And even though there was a lot of stimulus that made the market go up for a little while, it did not bode well in 2022. So, you know, when Biden could took office, I mean, 2021 was okay, but it was all about stimulus. So we had that brief moment of, uh, okay, well, at least we know who won the election. You know, things are going to be okay now. But we still had uh, inflation starting to creep in. We had bad business policies, a lot of things that were uh, taking place. 
course, we had COVID. They were trying to take all the credit for fixing COVID with all the vaccines. Of course, the government was uh, creating policy that was making certain companies and certain people very rich during that period of time. They were stimulating the economy by showering us with money that, you know, when you can't go out of your basement because you're locked down and you can't go out and do fun things when you're locked down, what do you do with your money? You stick it in the stock market. So that's why, uh, you know, Robin Hood investors, kids even that had were old enough to get stimulus money were just day trading stocks and, you know, doing stuff that uh, made the market look good, even though the economy really wasn't getting better. I think there were certain sectors of the economy that looked like they uh, ticked up a little bit, like people sitting at home all day decided to remodel their homes. There was a lot of construction things that looked like it was getting pretty good. And then the market got tied in construction. So everybody that wanted to build had to pay more for it and still is paying more for it. So there were certain sectors of the market that looked like it created a stronger economy. But all it was was really just a weak economy getting weaker and basically fueling a future bonfire. I mean, sticking all the fuel around the little fire, but, you know, it hadn't caught fire yet. And I think we're finally getting there where all this crap that we've done to create this horrible economic condition is all coming to fruition all at the same time. So I think we might be in a different phase prior to the election, especially if we go into recession as we're heading into, you know, they're touting Bidenomics. It's obvious that they're not working. There's not a lot. I don't think that Biden has to run on. That's why I think his poll numbers are falling. And I think they're the Democratic Party's in trouble trying to find another uh, person to take the place of Biden. And Kamala Harris, I don't think, has anywhere near the capacity to do that. I think she was more or less a Biden insurance because mm-hmm. you know, if you want her even less. So what are they going to do? I don't know. So this election cycle is going to be interesting. Again, typically people get a little bit cautious before an election unless they're very confident in what the outcome is going to be. I think we're a little bit more confident when Trump was in and kind of surprised and shocked that uh, somehow the Democrats uh, pulled off a win for Biden and his puppeteers and somehow we got into this big mess. So I think uh, everybody has their own theory on you know elections and shenanigans that might have been pulled to uh, make that all happen and supposedly <laughs> hope we can get them fixed and have fair elections here on, on out. There's a lot of people that believe that we may not ever have another fair election and that the party in power will never uh, give up power because, you know, they've got uh, things rigged. I mean, that's, you know, Trump's uh, claim. And a lot of people that voted for him uh, have that claim. You know, I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if all those things that they uh, say as far as the shenanigans and fraud are true. It looks like there's enough evidence to support it. But you know, going forward, I don't know. I mean, what do we do if, you know, there are going to be enough people that are scared to death that the other party that's been ruining our economy right now can stay in power because of the power to control a vote and control elections. In that case, I think there's going to be a, a lot of uh, questions and fear. And I don't think uh, leading up to the election, we're going to be very, very happy. Then again, other people that say, well, hey, if we know, uh, we already know how the election is going to come out and we know that they're going to support these industries, let's invest in those. I mean, there might be some good opportunities if you can outguess how the election is going to come out. But uh, but again, normally during an election cycle, in my history, and just as I look back at history, just because there's an election doesn't necessarily mean the party in power does everything they can to try to keep the economy good. I don't think they really are doing that. Bionomics is proof that they don't care because I think they have other ways to get reelected and not base it on you know how good they're doing with the economy, even though they keep saying Bionomics is working, everybody's making more money, everybody's living better. Like, really? Who is that? Because the people that they're talking about aren't saying that. They're having a, a bigger struggle. They're not being able to buy houses. They're having to spend more on food and gas. Those things that really matter, eating up in the budget. Savings is way down. Debt, credit card debt especially, is way up. Interest rates are going up and up. Credit card companies are going to have defaults left and right, already starting that. Banks are going to start failing because of debt repayments not being able to be made. And a lot of things are going to culminate into a uh, what I think is going to be, you know, the next big crisis. We're going to have to weather the storm. That's why you need to invest in safe money, protect what you've uh, worked a lifetime to achieve, and not put it all out there at the whims and the risks uh, and risk it based on the whims of uh, Bidenomics and other things that may impact your future. 
We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management in Tucson and Mesa. We've been talking about the market, the economy, the debt crisis, and the election cycle. Jeff, before we continue, I want to take a moment to remind our listeners how they can have a conversation with you and ask their questions about what's going on in the economy and the market and how it affects them and their retirement. If you want answers and request your no-cost, no-obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap by calling 520-780-9059. That's 520-780-9059. When you call, you're going to get a friendly voice on the other end of the line, more than likely Shelly, who will gather some basic information from you, then set you up with a conversation with Jeff. Now remember, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could uncover some blind spots that, when addressed, may help improve your quality of life in a retirement that could last as long as 30 years. Once again, that number to call, 520 520- 8090059 or you can request your complimentary consultation online at premret.com that's p r e m r e t.com every week jeff we talk about case of the week this week being no different so what was the case of this past week well you know I, we had a, a case similar to ones we maybe uh, talked about the main idea about this case of the week uh, this person had a um, i'll just kind of go over the deal the clients are 60 they're both uh, in the early 60s she's retired he's got another couple of years of working doing kind of a civil service type uh, business uh, since retiring from uh, military and you know has some pension money coming in upon retirement which is you know going to be you know in the 50,000 range social security for both of them is going to be in the roughly the 35 to 40,000 so they're going to be close to 90000 without worrying about the other assets. Now, they also have a particular retirement plan that does have a lump sum benefit. That particular retirement plan is about just shy of $700,000, and it's going to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of $27,000 for life if they want to annuitize it. So now they're getting up close to $120,000 in total income, you know, minus taxes. You know, they're going to be somewhere in the range of 100 ish spendable maybe. They have about 200000 in other assets between savings and investments and things like that. They have a small mortgage and so forth. So, um, you know, typical kind of a, a nice middle class, a little over $1 million in spendable money. have got pensions, which is kind of like, I mean, based on the pension, it's like having another million in savings. So it would be equivalent to somebody maybe have $2 million in retirement assets. They've got about a million plus a nice pension. But they want to have that income. You know, they're living on about 100000 a year now when they retire. Could they do better? Well, it looks like if they structure everything the way that the, they had planned before they came to us, they would be sitting in a very similar situation. So pretty solid. However, what about that $700,000 if uh, they both get hit by a bus in the next five years? The remainder of that $700,000 stays with the company. It's called an annuity, and it's a life annuity for a joint life annuity. Now, you know, the, the big thing that I saw that jumped out at me was, okay, can we do better than 27000 Or could we do better than 27000 And if something happened to both, John and Mary, let's say, their names uh, for lack of just, just to put names on it. So let's say John and Mary both die in the next few years. And instead of giving up the $700,000 balance, maybe there's still around $700,000 in uh, cash value that they can pass on to their heirs. They have three children and a couple of grandchildren and probably some more coming along. But can we still get the 27000 income? Well, here's what you can do. In a private pension, using insurance companies who, by the way, manage a lot of pension money, rather than take the annuity or the pension plan that is guaranteed you by the pension company that you've worked so hard with and put all your deferred compensation with or invested in or even had the company invest in for you. But if they give you a lump sum figure of around 700000 these people, after a couple of years, he's going to retire in a couple of years, can turn that into $40,000 a year in actual lifetime joint income and get the balance of the account. And this particular account, I mean, if you look at how it back tests, if, I mean, that's kind of a, a new strategies involved with the uh, indexes that it uses. But if you just look at a reasonable back test, this thing averages 
better than 10% rate of return over the last 20 years or so. Now, if we just use a rate of return of even just 5%, that money really doesn't run out even until they're 100 years old. There's still another $300,000 if it only does five. Now, it's got a history and a potential of doing much better than that. So two things. One is they get a $13,000 pay raise. Now, it is going to be IRA money because it's been deferred. So they're going to pay tax on an extra $13,000. They've also got an extra, you know, more money than they, they need to live on. They've got some savings and they've got a little bit of stock market money that you know, always gives them this tax bill that they don't know what's really going to be. So what we did is we structured a LERP, a life insurance plan, to go along with this. So we've already got their income up about, you know, 10000 net spendable, higher than it would have been. So now they're at about 130 gross and, you know, let's say 110-ish in total uh, spendable money. Now we turned over some of this uh, already taxed money plus some of the excess earnings Oh, and loans from the LERP to create 80000 a year times five years. Now, that's not a whole lot of money, but 80 times five, that's $400,000. They would be diverting from some assets that they already have, that they've already paid taxes on, including some of the excess income from the new retirement plan that they've just upgraded. And if they did this plan, they're going to get an extra $25,000 in tax-free income on top of that. Now, that not only covers the extra taxes, but it's money you can spend and it's tax-free income based on the death benefit you buy on the LERP, Life Insurance Retirement Plan. So essentially, you put away $400,000 and you buy a lifetime return of about $750,000 in tax-free income. In other words, you're spending that seven or $800,000 death benefit you buy with $400,000, you get to spend while you're alive and still pass on to your kids about $100,000 or $150,000 after you're you know, spending seven fifty dollars tax-free. So, so just that alone saves you another $10,000 in taxes. And net spendable now, instead of being around $100,000, increased it to about one ten dollars to one fifteen dollars with the extra income from the personal pension, the annuity that we uh, used that's with an A-plus rated company that's probably stronger than the pension plan that they already have guaranteed for life. Plus you get the balance of the account uh, when you both pass on. Now their net spendable income still is at about, with this plan, they're going to be at $100,000 for the next few years while he's working. But then the income goes up to about 140000 spendable and taxes go down to about 10000 a year. So their gross income goes to about 157. Taxes are in the 11000 range. So their tax is only going to be at the 15% tax bracket. They're only going to be spending tax on $78,000 of it because of standard deductions, partial deductions on Social Security, the tax-free income from the LERP mainly. But their taxes are going to be very minuscule compared to, you know, they're, they're at about 7 or 8% of gross income and 15% on just the taxable income, meaning they can spend about $140,000. So we just basically found about a thirty dollars to $40,000 increase in spendable income and less risk on the portfolio by structuring it in products that are insured, secured, and indexed to the market, but not risked in the market. Now, they still have two or $300,000 available liquidity anytime they should need it through this plan, through their other IRAs, Roths, and, and uh, investments. So it's not like they're tying up all their money. And by the way, in a LERP and uh, in those annuities, you can take more out if you want to, but you do give up the, uh, the lifetime income, uh, or you at least adjust the lifetime income when you do that. So it's not like we're tying up the money or we just bought something that we can't use again. It's just we're putting it in different buckets that generate income rather than, you know, investment risk, volatility, gut aches, and all the headaches that come with, you know, wondering if you're going to be okay or run out of money. And uh, I don't want my clients to feel like they're going to run out of money. I want to show them a, a reasonable plan that has predictable and guaranteed income elements so that they know how much they can spend every month without waking up 
sick if the market's not doing well. I mean, if the market's not doing well and you're only risking 10 or 20% of your money, who cares? You're not using that money to live on anyway. That 147 is based on, you know, some money coming out. But let's just say the stock market goes kapoof and you can't use the other uh, income. That other income is only about like 5,000 a year from those other investments. The liquid uh, money that, you know, gets taxed and gives us these uh, surprise tax bills. Well, if it's only a few thousand bucks, a surprise tax bill isn't going to be that bad. You know, I'd rather know what my taxes and my income is going to be beforehand and know that we're using reasonably low and very conservative projections on interest rate returns and, you know, have some peace of mind. So I think, you know, they were pretty uh, thrilled when they saw the plan and, you know, jumped on bars and says, oh, I get it. I'm tracking. I get, I, I get how this is working. I make more money, take less risks and pay less taxes. Okay, good for us. Let's move forward. So that's the plan of the week. Jeff, if our listeners have questions about your case of the week, of course, they can give you a call at 520-780-9059 to get their no-cost, no-obligation premier retirement blueprint. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime. 520-780-9059 for yours. You can also request your blueprint online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. When we come back, listener questions. And later on in the program, we'll be talking about dealing with your kids and their requests for money, how to do that and not compromise your own retirement. When our show continues here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shea. Welcome back to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management in Tucson and also up in Mesa where Jordan is manning the fort up there. Once again, same number for Jeff and Jordan. It's 520-780-9059 if you would like your no-cost, no-obligation retirement blueprint. In this section, we do listener questions and we'll kick it off this week with Bernie listening to us in Vail. And Bernie writes, Jeff, I'm a regular listener and really appreciate the advice you give. Thank you so much there, Bernie, for listening to us. He goes, on to say, I'm 54. My wife is 53. Right now, I'm in the planning stages for retirement and I'm thinking about taxes. I'd like to know what the ideal mix between before tax and after tax retirement accounts should be. Well, now, here we go again. It depends is the right answer. <laughs> now, I go off and, you know, go off different directions on this one a hundred different ways. What is the right? I don't know. I don't even know how much money you make. I don't know how much money you save. I don't know how much you already have set aside in Roth versus IRAs. Let's say if you are in, let's say you and your wife both make 200000 a year and are in the uh, 40% combined tax bracket or close to that between both of you and state taxes and all that stuff, let's just say you're in the top tax bracket or close to that. I would say getting a tax deduction, and if you, let's say you have maybe a million dollars in savings so far, and you hope that you get another million, so that you have a couple million by the time you retire, and let's say you can live on 150 to 200,000 when all said and done in retirement, I'm just, again, just throwing out numbers. I would say take the tax deduction on everything you can and not do any tax-free money at this time. If you're going to work another 10 years, let's say till you're, let's say 64 and 63 respectively, let's say 10 more years, maybe 12 more years, you might want to do your tax planning by doing Roth conversions later when you're in a 25% tax bracket, when you're making, you know, $100,000 a year between Social Security and pensions, if you have any, or between what you're living on and what you might want to convert depending on the tax brackets at that particular time. I would not pay tax at 40% right now if you think you're going to be in a lower tax bracket or a big time lower tax bracket. However, if you've got a million or $2 million in savings 
and you're living on eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year, and between you and your wife, you're making one hundred and twenty a year after taxes and withholdings, then I think you probably ought to uh, consider paying taxes now at the twenty-two or twenty-five percent bracket because I don't think it's going to be that low, even if you are making one hundred thousand dollars a year in taxable income down the road. So. Again, the ideal mix is I would love to have everything in tax-free income by the time you retire. However, what's the price of that? Is the price going to be 40% of all your income or investments going forward to do that? I think that's a bad risk. Uh, If it's going to be 20%, then heck yeah, I would do that all day long because you're probably never going to be lower than a 20% bracket anyway. So why not pay taxes now and then never pay tax on all the growth plus the income? If you do have extra income, let's say you go back to that $400,000 a year uh, deal and you can only max out, you know, maybe 50 or 60,000 between you in the uh, 401ks that you're investing in, well then put the extra 100,000 or so into a LERP, life insurance retirement plan, so that when you get uh, retired in 10 years, you have another 70 or $80,000 in tax-free income that you can pull out of those accounts for the rest of your life. That would be a great mix. So let's say between you and your wife, you have 50,000 in social security coming in. You have another 50,000 from IRAs coming in. You're going to pay tax on $100,000 minus your deductions. You probably only pay tax on 60 or 70 of it, meaning your tax is going to be in the 10 or 11,000 range. Oh, but you have that extra $75,000 a year coming in from the LERP. So there's 175,000 total minus 10,000 in taxes. Now you got 165,000 spendable. That's a pretty good tax bracket. I think if you can stay in the 15% tax bracket after retirement, and if you're going to pay taxes at 40% on the money that you make now, you might as well never pay tax on it again to the extent that you don't have to pay taxes on it again, because there's only limits as far as what you can write off. I would maximize those limits as far as what you can write off if you're in a higher tax bracket now and uh, use the excess that you've already paid taxes on to put in a LERP. It's just like a rich man's Roth. There's no restrictions. There's no uh, limitations to what you can uh, put into it. You can put $100,000 a year instead of seven, like a Roth IRA. There's no uh, income limitations on how much money you can make before you get phased out and can't do it. So you don't have to do the backdoor Roth or do any tricks to try to you know stuff a Roth full of uh, investments. And that's how I would round out the tax-free plan. Bernie, thanks for that question, and thank you for listening to us there in Vail. We'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Jeff, our next question comes from Don in Oro Valley, and Don says, I'm considering purchasing a fund in my IRA at Vanguard that's available in an ETF or a mutual fund. The mutual fund pays capital gains. The ETF does not. The fees are the same. My question is, if I reinvest the capital gains, wouldn't the mutual funds grow larger because I have more shares over time? If this logic is correct, why buy an ETF in a pre-tax account? Am I missing something? Maybe you are missing something. First of all, I don't know a situation where the fees are the same on an ETF as a mutual fund. Very rarely is that the case. An ETF is usually an exchange traded fund that has more of a mix of a broad mix of assets to be kind of like an index. Like if it's all biotech ETF, it's got tons of biotech stocks. A mutual fund is more of a managed, if you have a good manager, they'll buy and sell the the stocks of those biotech funds that you know they think are going to be better. An ETF is more like, like I said, like a managed index. That's typically why they have lower fees. First of all, I would not pay if an ETF had a 1% fee, I'd be questioned about why. And as far as the mutual fund, as far as, you know, the total growth or the dividends being reinvested, it's really, that's all relative to the ETF or the mutual fund you buy. It's not necessarily all the time that that happens, depending on how they reinvest dividends or if there is dividends or if there is a growth or, I mean, ETF can do the same thing. But I don't know that one is better than the other. If it's in an IRA, all you care about is the ultimate best rate of return. So it doesn't matter if you buy an ETF, especially if they, if all things are equal, and even if they're not, 
just try to make as much money as you can in your IRA. If you think the dividend structure, the reinvestment dividend structure in the mutual fund will pay you more and it's better managed, then especially if it's at the same feed, go for it, uh, especially in an IRA. Now, I like ETFs for non-qualified, non-IRA money, typically better just because you don't have to pay uh, taxes on the internal growth while it's growing like you do on all the trading that they do in a mutual fund. An ETF typically is just, you know, buy and hold money like a stock and you get long-term capital gains if you hold it for more than a year. So it's a little easier to control your tax situation on non-IRA money. You know, I would generally, you know, look at the mutual funds as a more often asset class that I would use in an IRA and less often in a non-IRA account and vice versa, ETFs in a non-IRA account. So I think you're on the right track. I think your question is uh, very valid and I don't know that you're missing something, but maybe that extra information helps. Once again, Don, we appreciate you listening to us in Oro Valley. And of course, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road He Had. Next question, Jeff, is Mike listening to us right here in Tucson. And Mike writes, it seems like people approaching retirement sometimes get very conservative with their investments. Should they be doing that? Well, again, here's another, it depends. I have a good number of clients that come in with uh, good pensions, good income that more than covers all their bills. And in that case, you know, why do you need to get conservative with uh, all your investments? If it's just going to be long-term growth investments, you're going to leave your kids, your heirs. If it's money, however, that you need to use to live on, I would be very conservative with it. I mean, you can't afford to take losses in principle. The volatility in the stock market is not good for an income plan. So if you have uh, 20000 coming in on Social Security and a million and a half in an IRA or a 401k account that's going to generate income, I wouldn't risk it in the market. You could lose half of that, and then your income goes from you know what might be seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year, or a hundred thousand total a year that you could live on in retirement, and you might have to cut that down to sixty or seventy for a while if the market you know stinks it up for a while. If you consider, oh well, the market always comes back and it always averages X amount of return. You know, look at the story of uh, Norm that I tell often, and it's in my book. So uh, since you wrote in a question, you're going to get the book. So read the story about Norm, and it's going to teach you why you don't want all your income plant money in the stock market because anytime the stock market is volatile you lock in losses every time you pull money out for income your money will not last as long in the market as it will in a lower paying interest account that never loses money on the principal. So I like principal protection for income. I like a certain amount of money in growth and aggressive stocks if you can afford the price of the stomach or gut aches when the market doesn't do well. And if you can afford to lose that money if the market takes a dump and doesn't come back. So again, I would only put money in the market that you can afford to lose and that would be based on all your income sources, how guaranteed and predictable those income sources are. And if they're not, then take as much of that money out of the market as you need to be, be as conservative with as much as you need to be to create that income plan or even a tax plan if you want to step outside of principal protection and go into LERPs, which also have principal protection and the cost of insurance is really what you pay for. But you get to spend your insurance, your tax-free insurance benefit while you're living. So you could get a tax-free income stream from that and still get some principal protection and some conservative allocation that way. Or you can use the principal protected accounts that I really like as those index annuities. Not all index annuities are built the same. There's a lot of ones that really stink. There's some that offer big bonuses and they're typically, you know, front end loaded to where you don't make any money. So be careful about, you know, how you invest in those kind of things. But I think principal protection all the way for income. Some companies even give you a guarantee of income regardless of how your uh, asset performs. So in other words, if your money runs out, you still get the income if you live longer than the account lasts. And those are ways that you become more conservative. You create an income stream that you can count on rather than create an income stream that uh, is totally relative to how the market's performing. And those are things you can't control unless you're 
president of the United States making all the policies that make the economy good. And right now we have a president that's not uh, in control. I don't know who the people who that are, but they're not. Bidenomics is, it's funny that they make, whoever's pulling the puppet strings and making Biden use the name, call it Bidenomics, so they don't have to take the fall for how lousy it's going. But they're, uh, here we go again, politically. But (laughs) bottom line is, uh, you can't control the market. You can't control politicians. You don't know the future. So why risk the future? Why risk all your retirement on something you can't control? There are things you can control because, and adding insurance companies as an asset class and a protector of your retirement plans is not a bad idea when you get to that stage. Mike, I hope that answers your question, and we appreciate you listening to us in Tucson. And of course, you will get Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. If you have a question for us you'd like us to answer on the air, you can send it to us by going to premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. There's a contact form there. Be sure to include your name and your address and your telephone number and your email as well. If we use your question on the air, of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. You're listening to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Plan and wealth management. And once again, if you would like your premier retirement roadmap, very simple to get that. You can do that by calling 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. Remember, no cost, no obligation whatsoever. 520-780-9059. You can also request it online at premrat.com. And if you're just joining us and you want to hear the show that you missed already, we are a podcast. Simply go to wherever you get your podcast and search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and a lot of other past shows so you can keep on top of your wealth and your journey towards retirement. Jeff, in the beginning of the show, I talked about uh, a topic we would be talking about on this show, and it really does apply to a lot of people these days, and that's helping your kids with finances without jeopardizing your own. Now, when you help your kid with their finances, I mean, these sacrifices can be dangerous for not only you as a parent, but also for the children as well. So can you break it down for us a little bit? Why would this be dangerous to your kids as well as you? Well, first of all, I, you know, I have so many examples of, of people who have drained their accounts without even talking to me. Uh, recently, I had one call in and said, well, the, the housing market is so bad and so hard. My daughter just graduated from uh, law school or whatever, needs a house. And, you know, first of all, daughter, if she graduated from law school and you helped her get there, you've got to give her inheritance, in my opinion. But uh, this person had about six or $700,000 in total assets, mostly in IRA and 401k money, pulled 400000 out, 450 out, I think. Hmm to buy his daughter a house in Utah where she's living. Not that that matters, but uh, that was you know where it was. And didn't even think about the fact that he's going to owe about 120000 maybe even more in taxes on that withdrawal, which he's going to have to pull again out of the 401k or the IRA that we manage. It used to be a 401k. And pay taxes next year. And then he'll have to pay tax on that money. So there's another $30,000 in taxes he'll have to pay on that money withdrawal. So he's basically out $600,000 to buy his kid a $450,000 house hmm. because he wanted to pay cash with it because he didn't like the 7.5% interest. So now this person who was using approximately 30000 25 to 30000 a year out of the IRA still wants to have that twenty-five, thirty thousand a year, but he wanted to help his daughter. There's no way. He said, well, I could live on less than the 30000 a year. I could probably live on fifteen. Well, guess what? After you pay taxes on this, you only have 750000 in the account anyway. By the time you're done paying taxes on all that money, 
you're going to be down to about a hundred. How are you going to live on a fifteen thousand a year on a hundred thousand dollars? I mean, with no interest, that's gone in seven years. So you just basically shot yourself in the foot. Are you going to be able to live on Social Security for the rest of your life? My opinion is, uh, you know, the daughter should, you know, get a job and buy her own house and maybe live in an apartment until interest rates come down again. If they do, if they don't, well, then you know, prices will probably have to finally find an equilibrium where prices will have to come down to accommodate the lower interest, and we'll probably have a real estate crash that you know will accommodate that. But let's wait. In my opinion, there's no way the daughter, even though she's got law school degree. Probably, you know, I don't know what her plans are, but maybe she doesn't even practice law very long and gets married and has kids and has to stay home for a little while or deal with that and, you know, doesn't move up the ladder until later in life. But how's this guy going to get his money back if the daughter already spent it on a house? He's going to say, hey, honey, I need you to sell the house. I need my money back. I'm, I'm my uh, lifestyle. I had to oops it and I had to spend the rest of my IRA money and I'm only getting 25000 a year on Social Security. So can you help me out? I don't think the daughter's going to be a very happy camper if she's asked to give back the four fifty. Oh, by the way, I'd pay taxes on it. The $150,000 in taxes or $200,000 in taxes that it ended up costing him, throwing him into a higher tax bracket all the while, you know, doing that is just foolish. And this is stuff that happens by the back. You know, if we have their money managed at Fidelity or in an IRA or something like that, and they just call in and say, send me the money, Fidelity or the IRA company can do that. And I don't even know till I open the account again. So, I mean, if you want to have an advisor, then get some advice from the advisor. And my advice would be, you'll do way better taking more out of that $700,000 IRA, paying the interest rather than paying taxes because the taxes, the interest rate on that mortgage is a lot lower than the tax bill you pay. And the fact that you could continue to make money over time on that investment would last a lot longer, keep you with the cash you need and still buy the kid a house. Just put the down payment on and take the payment. So what at 7%? Oh, maybe you're not making 7%, but you're not paying 30% in taxes or more. And you're not running out of money in seven to 10 years like you would be helping your daughter have a house. So I know we love our kids. I know we want to step out and do uh, nice things for them, but don't do it in a situation that's going to absolutely guarantee your retirement failure. And it's just too often that I hear stories like that. That was just one of the most recent ones. I should have called that the case of the week. Mm -hmm. That was the bad case of the week. Somebody that did it themselves and forgot about the taxes that they were going to have to pay. Oops, we helped. But but I had to help my kid. It's my only daughter. I love her. Yeah, okay. You just put her through law school. Why don't you call that good? You know, that's a good, <laughs> yeah, that already jeopardized your inheritance enough. Let's, let's you know, put a cap on the, the uh, detrimental uh, activities that you do to your own self. Well, as I said, you know, these sacrifices can be dangerous for parents. They can be dangerous for children. I mean, they're dangerous for parents because, as you said, you could run out of money. Sometimes they can be dangerous for children because then the children don't really learn how to stand on their own two feet and support themselves and what a struggle it is sometimes to get the things that you want in life. So you've got to think about that. But another thing I think that you really have to have is a frank conversation with your kids and actually understand how much money you can afford to give them and whether or not they're expected to ever pay it back. How would you suggest or have you ever had that conversation with your kids about giving them money to help them get a leg up? Uh, yeah, we've worked on that. I think anytime you give your kid a loan, just consider it a gift. I think if you can set up a, a you know, depending on the situation and the child and the job and the guaranteed income that that person might be getting through, you know, whatever it is you're loaning them, you know, you might set up a structure where they actually, you know, pay you back you know, at a situation where it's not so detrimental. I have, you know, some clients will sell their business to their kids because their kids worked in the business and they pay it off through business revenues. And that's mm-hmm. fine. You know, that that works just fine. It's probably easier than, you know, trying to, and that may become part of the uh, retirement income for the parent is just to use that cash cut that they created, let the kids run it as long as they don't run into the ground. You can kind of look over their shoulder, make sure that they're not and, uh, you know, secure some retirement income for you. Or, you know, you could find a private investor, find a lump sum, somebody that come in and 
be a partner with your kids, which they might not want, but you could at least cash out and maybe do something with the money that's a little bit more secure than just betting on them running the business and not running it into the ground. Again, every situation is a little bit different. I think, you know, like you said earlier, when we enable our kids by just assuming that they can always ask mom and dad for a handout because it's some sort of an endless, you know, money account, and they might not know how poor you really are because you always give them money. They just think, oh, you must be rich. You always give me money. I'll just keep getting money from mom or dad because uh, they have always given it to me before and I can spend what I want and be stupid with my money and take risk or just blow it because oh, mommy and daddy love me. And and they like you said, they never learn fiscal management. And then they're in a real mess. What what happens when mom and dad run out of money or die? Right. You know, then they're, they're, they're up a creek, especially when there's no inheritance left because they already spent it when they were alive. Again, you, you can't be an enabler. You got to, I think sometimes tough love, especially with money is more important than uh, and seeing your kids get through uh, the Bidenomic economy. And absolutely, money can ruin a family dynamic. Jeff, do you think it is a good idea to be totally transparent, totally honest with your kids about how much money you have, don't have, and what you can and cannot do? I mean, as you said, there's a misconception that mom and dad, because they are mom and dad, have all the money in the world. Yeah, I think you need to be honest. I think there's some uh, parents that don't want to... uh and I think there's a situation where you, there might be a limit on what you want to divulge to your kids. Maybe you're worth $20 million and you don't want them to think that. Otherwise, they will just assume that they can spend everything because they're going to get this fat inheritance when you die or that you'll always be in a position to help them out. So just that idea that maybe you're a little bit more flush than they knew might not be a good thing to share with them, you know, unless you have that kind of relationship. I think everybody's different. Some kids would uh, probably use it to your disadvantage. But at the same time, if you're uh, a little bit tight and uh, you've helped them in the past, I think it's fair to let them know that, look, I have a plan. And one of the things that I like about what we do here at Premier Retirement Planning, our retirement plan is on a spreadsheet that shows, hey, this is how much my money's going to last. And this is how much I have to spend. And this is how much I have in accounts. And if you can see that there's excess to loan, here's the balance of what we can loan. And we can also see that if we loan or gift 400000 out to build a house now for your daughter because you love her, if she pays you back, that's one thing. Or if she gets a mortgage when interest rates go down, that's one thing if, if it really happens. But we can also say, what if it doesn't happen and that $400,000 is gone? How long does my money last now? And if you can see the reality of you being 82 years old and broke, that might help you rein in your own, I guess, generosity that would otherwise be to your own detriment. So in other words, seeing a plan, you can see how much you can or can't help a kid. We have a, a client that's doing that. Uh, the daughter wants to live in her house. I mean, they're pretty well to do. The daughter wants to live in their house uh, while she builds a new one. Okay, mm-hmm. that's fine. You know, she's gone through some you know extra um, uh, graduate uh, degree stuff. She's got a much better job. She can afford a bigger house, so she's going to build one. Well, they loaned her the money even at zero interest. You know, two or three hundred thousand dollars for the down payment to kind of get the uh, construction loan started and get the project started. But it's not affecting their income one bit. And if she never pays it back, they'll still be okay based on their lifestyle, their living expenses, and the fact that they've got $3 million in savings that, you know, is more than enough to cover that. But if you have $600,000 in savings and loan $300,000 of it out to your daughter who may or may not pay you back, and this is the difference between you living on $100,000 a year in income in retirement and $70,000 a year in retirement because you basically squandered some of that uh, future income plan for you. That would be something that you could actually see on the plan of what the detrimental effect would be if you do this and things don't work out. So, again, it's a it's kind of a living worksheet that you can plug in scenarios and see what the future outcomes would be given a scenario that where it's paid back or what isn't paid back or if you do loan the money or gift the money and how much uh, you know taxes it will cause if you pull it from IRA money as opposed to you know bank cash that you've already paid taxes on, et cetera. So, you know, having the plan 
gives you a lot more power to make smart decisions. And that's really what our job is. It's not to make you rich. It's to keep you from losing. <laughs> it's, it's to help you stay rich if you are or to whatever level of richness that you've uh, gathered for retirement. If you can afford to retire, you're rich, in my opinion. Um, everybody has a different uh, you know, standard of what that means. But I want to keep you, at least keep you in that same boat to where you can uh, you know, have some sort of predictability that it's going to work out. And if we have to adjust the budget a little bit, it's not going to be a detrimental adjustment to where we you know, can't make our bills. So again, having a plan just keeps things in perspective, gives us a worksheet where we can reevaluate the decisions and know what the future consequences might be if we overspend, overloan, overgift, be overgenerous or not. We're talking about helping your kids with finances without jeopardizing your own. And keep in mind, too, that if you're giving more than $17,000 or $34,000 from you and your spouse to an individual, you'll need to file a gift tax return with the IRS. But there are some situations in which you can give more than the limit, such as paying tuition on someone's behalf directly to the school or paying medical expenses directly to the health care provider. And keep in mind that the 2023 lifetime exemption for gifting is $12.92 million, which probably does not apply to most of our listeners. Once again, if you have questions about anything that we've talked about on the show today, or you want to get in and sit down with Jeff and get your no-cost, no-obligation premier retirement roadmap, as I said, it's not going to cost you a dime. You can do that by calling 520-780-9059. You can do it this weekend. Leave your information, Shelly, you get back to you and schedule a time that's convenient for you and Jeff to ask your questions and to get on that pathway to retirement. Once again, 520-780-9059. You can also request your plan online at primred.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, I want to thank you for your time. We are out of time for this week, but most of all, thank our fine listeners for joining us here in the greater Tucson area. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST. Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy, and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.